You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You've bought your tickets. The ushers are about to open the doors. Yes, the projections as Smicha is about to start. But first, you've heard of me on this platform touting NRS, a great company whose many dedicated employees I get to see in action. NRS Pay has recently launched its new cost-cutting program called Cash Discount. The way it works is any vendor using NRS Pay Cash Discount has their sale register tabulating automatically a dual pricing, which offers customers a choice of a cash payment, which could result in up to a 4% discount over swiping their card. If your business meets the $18,000 a month threshold, there's absolutely no monthly fee to incur. NRS Pay Cash Discount makes it less expensive to accept credit cards, so you'll save money while helping your customers save at the same time. NRS is offering a time-limited deal right now on this state-of-the-art system. You'll get a free card reader with zero hidden fees, no long-term contract, and no early termination fee, which means you can switch your processing plan without penalty. NRS Pay is a proud part of the IDT Corporation that I've been associated with for over 10 years and has integrity built into its corporate DNA. I know its founder and officers and salespeople, and they truly stand by their product and will help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Check nrspay.com for more information or call 833-289-2767. And now here's the projectionist, Hasmicha. Enjoy. Clear the aisles, the projectionist, Hasmicha. I'm here with Yitzhak Kolakowski, and I think, Yitzhak, this week you probably heard... Clear the aisles, because you ventured down to the film forum down in lower Manhattan, and they were highlighting a brand new series, a sort of celebration of Hollywood's first wave of 3D. I think there was an injection in the derriere of the Hollywood moguls and producers to come up with ways that the film experience, the film going experience would, 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 would shatter totally and completely anything that a little old black and white television could do. There was such a fear of the threat that people would not be going to theaters and putting down their nickels and quarters and dollars that Hollywood engaged in a super intense technological explosion of ideas of how we can make the film experience better. Whether it was the incredible cinemascope, all the colors and things you would experience, or as was introduced, the 3D experience, something that you feel that the movie is coming alive. So last night, we, uh, we, my son and I went to see Robot Monster, like you said, at the Film Forum. I hadn't been to Film Forum and probably over 20 years, I saw The Great Dictator there, actually, which is interesting connection to last week. And uh, the Fermin Grimman, who told me about this showing uh, on Facebook, and we actually got to meet there. We both went to the, to the showing, and, and we both also go to the, once in a while, to the drive-in theater in Pennsylvania, uh, mm-hmm. the Mahoney Theater, that also shows the, the classic movies. They show movies on 35 millimeter film which are not so clear this was a totally different experience because this was a a new remastered version done by the 3d film archive mr bob uh, fermanek is the head of the 3d film archive and he said usually it takes about two or three months to remaster a film 
this particular film took them almost a year to remaster. And in addition to that, they, he also told the whole story of how he discovered a short subject also in 3D that was shown before the original film. And the, let me just tell every, our listeners that the film itself is it's a very well-known Turkey film. I know you had a different experience watching it, but I think it sort of has a history, Robot Monster, of being like one of these turkeys. Uh, like, like it's like a, turkey awards. Yeah. Yes, a, a golden turkey. Like seriously, it's like worse than Plan Nine from Outer Space. It's like, com- it's like it makes no sense. The the special effects and the 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 monster who has destroyed everyone in the world except this one family is clearly a actor in a gorilla suit, but instead of a gorilla head, he's wearing some sort of like like uh, the type of helmet an undersea diver would wear, and attached on top of it looks like uh, like very long rabbit ears that you would have on your antenna on a television. The film is only an hour, I think, and six minutes long, so I assume it needed when it was first shown either as, it was either part of a double bill or did have a short subject. And you're saying that they were able to recover the original short subject that was attached to this film back in 1953. Yeah, it was a fascinating story, actually. They showed a documentary. This this new release is available on uh, Blu-ray and with, as they said, about over two hours of special features. So people, even if they can't make it, to some sort of special 3D showing, they are able to purchase a Blu-ray disc version of this film, and they will be able to wear uh, uh, 3D glasses and appreciate the 3D aspect of it? I understand that it comes with 3D glasses, yes. So there's there's two different types of 3D. That the, the, DV, the Blu-ray disc includes a 2D remaster, and then the black and white, 3D, which is what we watched in the theater, which was beautiful. It, it was. It, I gave me chills to see this movie. I, having seen this film dozens of times, lampooned on Mystery Science Theater 3000, or just watching the movie by itself on the VHS tape I had as a child, and having met some of the stars at Monster Bash uh, years ago, and one of them is going to be there again in October, uh, it was a totally different experience to sit there on a big screen with a good print in 3D. As soon as the movie started, I had chills because the opening credits includes pictures of comic books, different comic books as the background, and the comic books were actually in 3D, which you didn't see. big aspect of this movie was that there was the billion bubble machine. So something like you would see with Lawrence Welk having bubbles flying around, you understand why when you're seeing it in 3D as opposed to in 2D. You're like, why are there bubbles there? In 3D, understand, oh, it, it, causes, it makes the effect look different. When you were watching this, you actually felt that that gorilla robot monster was coming at you. I, you could see every hair on the suit. You could see the, <laughs> the beauty of the background. They filmed this at... Uh, Bronson Canyon is where they filmed. Right in California, not far from Burbank, I think. Yeah, you could actually see the Hollywood sign from there. (laughs) And and it's been used as a background for probably hundreds of movies. But you're saying that 
the experience of seeing it in 3D turned even the most blasé and standard backgrounds into something very gripping and realistic. Yes, it really did. I, I was just sitting there the whole time with my mouth open with somewhat of a smile, but just in awe of this film. It's interesting, I think, Yitzchak, and we probably would need a film historian to properly explain why, you know, 3D, but why it didn't continue to become a standard experience. Mr. Fermanek last night gave a little lecture before he started the film, and he showed us actually the difference between a reel of film that would have been for a regular standard film, like you would expect to see something that's about maybe um, a foot and a half in diameter. And and then he took out the one for 3D because you needed twice as much film to show 3D. And this was uh, well over three feet in diameter. And he said, if, if this is an empty spool, if it was filled with film, it would weigh over 40 pounds. So the actually, you know, we, the show is called The Projectionist. If a, an actual projectionist would have had to do quite a lot of work to actually show a 3D film, especially when they had to change the film reels, even to the point where, you know, you would think of a movie like The Agony and Ecstasy that's uh, three, four hours long. Well, that you need an intermission. This is a movie that's an hour long, and actually I had never seen it like this before, but again, they showed as uh, recreated as it was originally with an intermission just because it was so difficult for the it was difficult for the projectionist to be able to handle the heavy equipment to be able to to actually stick the 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 reels into the projector. This was just breathtaking. It was literally it's worth it to see. I know there are a lot of theaters around the country that are showing this. I will tell you that I when I was dating my wife. I was still in a state of, I don't go to movies, but I will go to a 3D movie. That was my uh, compromise as a rabbinical student. So my wife and I went to, on our some of our first dates, one of them was House of Wax, which is with one of your favorite actors, of course, Vincent Price. And it's going to be shown in a few weeks. It'll be showing in the film form. And the other is another one being shown in the film form, of course, um, directed by probably my favorite director still, despite despite the 85 shows we've done here and what we've talked about, is still Hitch. And, of course, Hitch's Dilemma for Murder. So that was my thing Like when I would say, I don't go to movies, but I will take my wife on a date to a 3D experience. So I will tell you that, I have a lot of fondness for these 3D films because of the courtship period that I was going through at the time. But I will tell you that when I went to see House of Wax and and, and I was thinking, why is this in 3D? In the beginning of the film, at some little market, a vendor, a street vendor is showing some sort of paddle ball off and for no reason whatsoever, except to exploit the 3D, what they would do is they, they he paddled the ball towards the screen. So, hey, remember, this is 3D. So, therefore, we're going to insert into this horror film this little moment of 3D levity uh, or experience. 
And it was sort of ridiculous. And I was like, you know what? Wow, this is, and our, the great, incredible comedy troupe that is known as SCTV lampooned this often in their um, Dr. Tongue and uh, uh, 3D films where they would, you know, specifically, specifically push into the camera, you know, uh, some cheese pate or something as part of the 3D film. So was there any, was there many instances where you could tell it was just done like to have like a 3D something's coming at you? As I mentioned, the bubbles, the billion bubble machine that's mentioned in the credits was for the 3D effect. And that was actually something when um, Claudia Barrett was at Monster Bash, they asked, what's the bubbles about? And she's like, I think it has something to do with the 3D. And once you see it in 3D. Claudia Barrett is the the female lead, essentially, in this film. Yes, yes. She's since passed away, but I... I did get her autograph, and I got so. So Yitzchak, do you again? So I'll ask you. Despite your, do you think there was anything of this film that needed the 3D, or was it such a clunker that without 3D, there's no way you could sit through it? Well, I, I always enjoyed this movie without 3D because it's short enough. It's the pacing is well enough, and it's and it's just so kind of goofy that it's entertaining. There's there's one scene where there's a wedding scene and the father who's uh, a scientist, he he's performing the ceremony. So I, as a, a wedding minister, I, I certainly, I, I see. I appreciate <laughs> that. It rang that bell. It, it hit it, that it, note for you. It was very interesting to see in a science fiction film, such a religious scene because he, he starts off, you know, dearly beloved, we're gathered here. And then you see him turn in a very sincere prayer, turn up to heaven and, you know, and he's like, you know, dear Lord, you know, I've tried my best to live my life according to your laws. And he says, according to the, the Ten Commandments and the Beatitudes and the Golden Rule. You know, I, I, I didn't do much research before having this discussion with you when you told me this was the film you wanted to talk about. But I did see that this robot monster he has a power. He's able, he shoots a lightning bolts or something from his hands, right? There, there are two monsters. There's, there's he himself, who's the earth robot monster. And then there's the leader, uh, the great leader who's only talking to him over a, a television screen. And uh, oh, that's so why he one, needs, that's why he needs the rabbit ears because he's picking up messages from his. Well, he's, he, he actually has some some radio equipment and he has some rabbit ears in addition to the one on his head. He has some rabbit ears. He's just constantly moving. Like he's moving it from, from one box to another box. And it's not clear what he's doing with that. Although he kind of hints to that. That's where his energy and his power is. So is, is he from another planet? How is it that this being walks the earth and kills everybody? Is it with those lightning bolts or electric bolts to come out of it, his hands? You well, know, the, the the leader one does send lightning bolts out of his hands at the end, but throughout the movie, he it, the movie kind of like there's a there's a noise that like an electronic noise, and and then the film goes into um, negative, and it flashes between negative and positive film, and that seems to indicate that that's the calcinator death ray that he used to kill everybody but this particular family had an antibiotic pill that made them immune to the calcinator death ray so that that's pretty much the answer i actually gave a lecture at monster bash that year when 
Robot Monster was featured, which again is going to be featured in October. But I gave a lecture on the history of the usage of stock footage of dinosaurs and the this footage from 1 million BC and the footage from Lost Continent that were used in this film, but also other footage, which I had never known about this before. The footage that I had seen before of actual war images of destruction of, of cities, you know, which was footage from actual wars, even though it only took four days to film this movie, it, it took several months to do the post production the special effect and one effect that he did was it you know this the since the stock footage was not in 3d some of those stock footage scenes particularly the ones of the destruction of the city was actually two different images superimposed so when you saw it through the 3d glasses you had this uneasy vision that actually could look from in your right eye and see one thing in your left eye and see another thing or with both eyes you see this incongruous scene of different different scenes superimposed and Fermanek actually said you know that was something that Jean-Luc Godard used later this was something that uh, you know already Phil Tucker had used in 1953 in this in this very cheap movie is is the implication that that it's not really the monster that destroyed everyone but really we are in threat of destroying ourselves based on uh, the nuclear weapons that we have part of the story was was that that because there's a lot of exposition that's given the robot monster gives pretty much a lot the whole exposition in his report to his superior and he says that when they when the robot monsters first attacked roman first attacked the the human then uh, one of the countries thought that the other country had attacked and so they did start a war thinking that it was among themselves and the romance said he was disappointed because he didn't want to destroy the cities because he thought it would provide some amusement to their people to, to, to see the human city. Are they extraterrestrials? These robot monsters, do they come from a different planet? Does it ever, does the film ever explain? Yeah, it's, it's yes, all. It's... Yes. The... <laughs> Thank you. Show me. Yes. So in the movie, as well as on the poster and trailer, they say that the monsters do come from a different planet. But in the movie, they say they come from a planet called Roman. Very, very silly. And one of the alternate titles says that they come from Mars. Or the moon. Wasn't it Monsters from the Moon? The Monsters from Mars. Mm -hmm. And... On the poster and in the trailer, they say it's from the moon. And I, th- I guess they're playing on the fact there's human versus Roman. Well, Shlaimi, it sounds like you had a great time. Your father shared with me uh, the picture of you leaving or going into the theater wearing the 3D glasses. So you would recommend this film for other children and interested adults, correct? Yes, but I would... But if they were going to first watch Robot Monster, I think that they should first watch the 2D version. Because when you first see it in 3D, it, you want you want to know what the 2D version is like. It was originally released in 3D, so it's yeah. not, it, it, it is designed to be seen in 3D. 
Yeah. But I think, but I think Shloimi's point might provide the answer to the question that I raised. Why is it that it lost its popularity? And part of it is, I think, that the experience, like you said, was so overwhelming that often you lost aspects of the story because you were just focusing on the the sort of uh, the experience the the volatile living vivid experience of the 3D so the part of your brain that processes narrative sort of isn't working <laughs> so did a- you find it problematic cuz i i thought it even helped the storyline did you find it problematic to follow the story but maybe again, I, you could, it could be that I was. But Shlomi is already just people. like you, prejudiced because he's already seen it. You know, I'm not only am I happy that you were able to bond with Shlomi in uh, one of the last meccas of, of of showing old films, but we also got Shlomi himself, uh, who is an aspiring film director, a Spielberg in the making for sure, to have some wonderful uh, involvement in this podcast. So I'm very happy about that. Speaking of young people like Shlomi, the child in this film played by Gregory Moffat. So how would you rate Gregory Moffat's performance in this film? I mean, nobody here is winning the Oscar, but is Gregory Moffat, does he, does he vindicate himself as a, as a realistic child? I think so. I think he, you know, he has the one line, you know, where the robot monster is trying to kill him with the calcinator death ray. And he says, uh, you look like a pooped out pinwheel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was the line. And he said it like, you know, you would think a real kid would say it. You know, it sounded really, it didn't sound. How, how cool. old was Gregory when he made this film? He was about 10 years old. Yeah. 10. Yeah. Maybe I can use, um, you're mentioning of Gregory. And of course, he didn't have a large film career afterwards. I think he did a number of films and some television programs. And then he sort of retired from filmmaking, I guess, when he reached his teenage years. Yeah. So 1957 was his last acting gig. And that was uh, on an, event, an episode of Adventures of Superman with, with George Reeves. And again, I think this is sort of par for the course for many. We've talked about Freddie Bartholomew. Uh, listeners could go back to that episode where I sort of was waxing beatifically about his talent. And we've talked about Elizabeth Taylor and Mickey Rooney. I, I think it's almost become almost a common theme in our programs to extol these these child actors. But I don't know if we've ever really theorized correctly as to why so many of them uh, were not able to transition properly uh, and so many of them are just little curiosities and footnotes in the history of film. Even the ones that were able to get to their line readings and and, and create quite a bit of emotion. We talked about Brandon DeWild, and we talked about Claude Jarman Jr. I, I have a theory, Yitzhak, and I want to share it with you and Shlemy. And that is that often when there is a child in the film, the child represents a purity of emotion and feeling. You don't expect, although again, Margaret O'Brien and the Bad Seed, notwithstanding, you don't really expect to see in the child duplicitousness or uh, some sort of sophisticated, like different type of thinking. I'm this way today or that way tomorrow. The child is either a bully, the child is sensitive, there's a certain just purity of pure emotion and feeling. And let me, let me add another layer here. 
I think all of us, the same way we are affected by great special effects or censure sound or 3D, that we sort of like like it even despite what we're seeing, when we have the uh, uplifting score, we somehow find our hearts soaring, which we wouldn't otherwise. I think when we see a child, just like when we see a dog or any other sort of cute animal, certain things go off in our mind and we are much more accepting. Somehow the child gives, evokes within us a sympathetic aspect. Uh, it invokes a sense of familiarity, a connectedness to our own past or to our own children. And as long as the child is able to look into the camera and say the words as if they are coming from within themselves, as opposed to reading off a cue card, I think we applaud that performance and, 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 and it speaks to us. It resonates with us like Asta's did in the thin man or, or scamp or any of the uh, wonderful animals that have been used uh, throughout the history of film. Mickey Rooney, of course, is an example of a child teenager who basically his whole career struggled to try to regain the fame that he had as the number one box office star in the world. <laughs> but it's almost impossible to get that back. The problem is that as if you go into a, an adult role there, what we're looking for is like Bogart and Casablanca. There's a sense of angst, fear, heroism. Those are things that it's much harder uh, to project and portray. Uh, you can have, you can have Zuzu's uh, petals and, and she could be crying. Oh, daddy. And, and you feel something, but to go from the highs and lows, that takes a maturity and a development that most people don't have. I would say there's another reason too. And that is, and this is a very, perhaps, you know, a, a reason that many people will find uh, superficial, but I think it's true. We can accept a child who's homely. We can accept a child with buck teeth. We can accept a child who is, is gangly or because, oh, all kids are like that. But once we're talking about a role where the child has to carry the film, the assumption is that to carry the film as a star or a starlet, you'd have to be a paragon of physical attributes. And many of these kids just didn't grow up to be good looking. So the, the, the kids who were comely as children and then were handsome or beautiful as adults, they had an easier time doing that uh, than children who, you know, let's, you know, we'll talk about Jackie Coogan. No, Jackie Coogan was a, was a, was a very angelic looking child in, in the kid with Charlie Chaplin, <laughs> but he couldn't help the fact that as a teenager and as adult, he turned into a, just an overweight, you know, balding fellow. It probably took the Adams family to bring Jackie Coogan back to any sort of a type of notoriety that he had as, as a small child. I think that's also, I think, part of it. I, I, I was thinking about this, Yitzchak, because I, I, a TCM has been showing a slew of Jackie Cooper films, not Coogan, but Jackie Cooper. We've talked, of course, about the R Gang shorts from Hal Roach. And that was my first exposure to Jackie Cooper, who played the character Jackie. Before Spanky and Alfalfa were the standard R Gang Moppets, Jackie was there. He's the one who had the crush on Mrs. Crabtree. And 
Hollywood plucked him out of those small sh- roles or in the shorts and in 1931 uh th- you know, put him front and center in a num- in a film called Skippy where he became the youngest nominee for an academy award and i think that still stands today i'm not sure if right i think i think he was the i think he was 9 years old i i i tried to watch Skippy and i i, I could not get through it it, 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 it has its heart in the right place, but just the the quality, the sound quality, and even his performance. I, I, I it's clear that you know the, some of the same factors that I just talked about were influencing the Academy members to give him a nomination. I think he does much better in a film that was made a little bit after Skippy. I think in, the, in the, a couple of months later, and it was released in 1932, I believe, which is called A Divorce in the Family. And this has Lewis Stone, uh, the father in all the Andy Hardy films, also in Angels in the Outfield. I think he plays the commissioner of, of the baseball and Conrad Nagel. And I thought this was a film that really in a very mature way explores a new phenomena, which is the, uh, the rise of divorces in the United States and the difficulty of dealing with step parents. And unlike the wicked step parent, where it's clear that the father is the saint and the stepfather or the mother is the saint and the stepmother is evil, here it isn't so simple. There's a subtlety in this film because the stepfather is a doctor. He's a doctor who's committed to save people's lives, but he doesn't know how to be a parent. And it's clear also that the biological father of Jackie Cooper who's called Terry in this film, is not really meant to be a stable domestic parent. There's a reason why the the marriage broke off. And the film really pushes you to think about why he, even though he loves his kids, but he also has a passion. He's sort of an Indiana Jones without any of the swashbuckling. He's He, he moves around the world to discover various sites and digs. The film actually begins with Jackie on one of those digs and some sort of Southwestern uh, Aztec, perhaps uh, in the Pueblos, somewhere in among the Indians where uh, he is on a dig. And of course, Terry has already learned how to play with all the Indian children. And he teaches them to do the, the whistle, the full throttle whistle, which is the way he connects to his father. I thought that the, uh, the film, explains the excitement of having a dad who can take you to these places, but also the reality of how difficult that would be to be such a father. And it really explains how people can love each other, but realize that it's best for the children to split up. This was a pre-code film, and maybe because of that, that's why this theme was in there. The director of this film was someone who worked with Chaplin. It was Charles Reisner who actually worked with Chaplin and he worked with Buster Keaton. He was somebody who had a, a great pedigree in filmmaking. And I think he, I, I think there are some, a number of wonderful shots here. There's a couple of great special effects. Nor uh, Terry has an older brother in this film who's going to a military school. And there's a little bit of uh, a love interest between the Terry's brother, who's uh, known as Al and uh, the next door neighbor, uh, Lucille, played by Gene Parker, who had a pretty long career in Hollywood. Those that are want politically correct films, this ain't it. 
there isn't that much dissing of the Native Americans, but there is an unfortunate uh, black ma- character, the black maid in the house. And she is, um, she's not a complete, uh, it's played by Louis, actually a very famous actress. It's like Louise Beavers, who I think you're probably familiar with. Louise Beavers, I think, was in the movie, uh, the very famous film of Imitation of Life, where she plays uh, the mother of a, of a child that that is white, a black mother whose child is white. Louise Beavers, uh, I, I, you know, you can see some decent acting here, but it's unfortunate that she's scared of the lizards, and there's a number of things here that people might find offensive. However, there is a, there is quite a bit of drama because you know, the doctor, the stepdad, decides to physically discipline Terry. Because of that, he decides to run away after he was licked. And when he runs away, his older brother tries to find him. And because of that, an accident occurs. Uh, the older brother is at death's door. And the only thing, of course, that can save him is the doctor's quick actions and the fact that uh, he is willing to give him a blood transfusion. And the sort of understanding between the biological father and the stepfather becomes some of the main dynamic in the film. The step, the biological father blames the stepfather. He says, okay, you saved my son, but you could have, it was because of you that he was almost died. It's because of you hit my old younger son and my older son went to find him and therefore endangered himself. None of this would have happened had you not exercised violence against my child. And, and the film really, doesn't take a clear side. The film recognizes that it's hard to parent. The film recognizes that, that, that it's wrong to get, to mete out physical punishment just because a child doesn't conform to what you believe the standards of the household should be, but not because he did anything inherently wicked. So I think it's, it's a great showcase. For Jackie Cooper, dealing with, I think, a subject that's still quite relevant. Again, that's divorce in the family. Uh, And again, it it, it also really, um, from a child's perspective, he's supposed to be eight. I think Jackie was 10 when he made it. How to process a divorce, how to understand the divorce from a child's way of thinking. It's not a weepy film. It's not a soap opera film. Uh, and I think there are actually a number of humorous moments where Jackie Cooper shows his talent as a comedian. Now, I extol Jackie. He's no Freddie Bartholomew. What happened to him? Well, Jackie Cooper had a pretty decent career. I would say a, a better career than Jackie Coogan. Jackie Coogan was sort of like at the top, and then all of a sudden he came back. Jackie Cooper did work consistently, but because he didn't turn out to be Clark Gable, he didn't turn out to, up to be a, a particularly good-looking character. He basically did character roles. Many of our listeners will probably say, oh, Jackie Cooper, he was Perry White. And maybe that was the definitive film iteration of Perry White in the Superman series. But I want to just mention two other things that Jackie Cooper did. One of them was a uh, Twilight Zone episode uh, called Caesar and Me, where again, it's, 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 you know, it was the only Twilight Zone episode that was written by a woman, Adele Strasfeld. And it's basically a pretty simple story about a ventriloquist who's being controlled by a live dummy. It's not so much that 
he causes the dummy to come alive because of his insecurities, which is sort of like the two years earlier, the famous Cliff Robertson 1962 version of the dummy. In this 1964, but two years later, uh, here the dummy is actually a living piece of wood, is basically controlling all the people who run into him. What I wanted to bring out, though, was two things. Jackie Cooper's most effective acting in this Twilight Zone episode is when he's almost crying. I almost saw, here it is again, right? You know you know what this kid was good at? This kid was good at showing hurt and pain. And as an adult in 1964, which was, you know, 30 years later, he was basically doing the same thing. Uh, the other role, I didn't get a chance to research it, but I saw it years ago, and maybe you're familiar with it too, is where he plays one of the villains in Columbo. And once again, I think... I think he plays a senator film in, in that Columbo episode, if I'm not mistaken. And he does a decent enough job. He's a very duplicitous, evil guy. But he banks on his outer personality as being a very nice guy, which, of course, Jackie was. And I think that's part of what his, his child persona was as well. Of course, Columbo is able to discover a very, you know, with his own wisdom, that this guy isn't what he is purporting himself to be. So that is as far as, as as Jackie goes. One last little note. In that Twilight Zone episode, th- there is a little girl who was a, 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 a screen actress. She played the original uh, June, baby June in Gypsy. Her name was Susan Caputo. She changed her name to Morgan Brittany, and she was a regular on the uh, on the primetime soap Dallas. And she was a, a child actress from her from her toddler years and she plays this vicious little girl like margaret o'brien total bad seed who is spying on cooper in this program listens in uh when he's when the dummy is talking to him calls the police on him when he pulls off the robbery and at the end of this twilight zone episode spoiler alert the police take the talking uh, to take uh, Jackie Cooper away and leave the dummy with the bratty 10 year old. And of course the dummy turns to her and says, okay, kid, now it's going to be me and you, you still got those poison darts. And I was interested in, in Susan Caputo who changed her name to Morgan Brittany about what she did after this. And I discovered that she was quite busy in television. You might've seen her in the outer limits episode, the inheritors, but she was in the 1967 season, the season premiere of The Andy Griffith Show. She plays Opie's first love. But I wanted to underscore that when I was looking into Susan Caputo slash Morgan Brittany, I remembered about Ron Howard. And I think Ron Howard is another classic example of a very effective child actor. He, I think, was just as effective as Jackie Cooper was playing Opie. Um, I think especially the first couple of seasons, you have all stars there. By 1967, Don Knotts had left the show. Jim Neighbors had been on his own program. The show was really, although it was still getting pretty decent ratings, it was a shell of itself. It didn't seem like Andy Griffith really cared anymore. But Ron Howard grew into a a real effective actor. 
those of you that remember him from American Graffiti and from Happy Days will say, well, he was a pretty good adult, teenage, young adult actor. But I think he recognized, and it's not just the fact that he was going bald, you know, I think it was also the fact that he wasn't really star material. He was a great emoter. You could say that's a real kid. In many ways, like I said, he showed up Andy Griffith by his talent. But as a, a young adult, I think it dawned on him, and he was always interested in directing, that his talents would lie elsewhere. And of course, I think when they write the epitaph for Ron Howard, I think they'll talk about someone who became a very effective, popular director. He was somebody who was who would take chances, whether it's in a beautiful mind or backdraft, um, splash. He was someone, I think, who really transitioned in the right way. And again, he, as an actor, he understood how to direct actors. And I, I, I think, you know, it was sort of, in a way, like the best type of transition you can think of. Ron Howard is no Spielberg. He's not, uh, uh, he's not uh, Scorsese. He's not really a theorist of film, but he is an effective communicator. And I think he's, I think the films that he's made really, you know, are, are, are the indicators of a sort of healthy personality. I think a lot of the child actors, Yitzhak, they ended up, of course, being the objects of abuse, as you know. You know, people would look at them, you know, again, Jodie Foster was able to somehow resist that. But of course, Jodie Foster, who was, uh, you know, stalked by, by Hinckley. But there's, for every Jodie Foster, there were so many others that as they grew up, they couldn't deal with the fame. They allowed the, you know, the drugs and the fast life to get to them. They didn't have a normal schooling. And because of that, really, you know, they, they fell off the, the, the wagon. I think, you know, with Ron Howard, you definitely have a, a great arc of stability. So I would recommend, <laughs> I wasn't going to go this way. It's not only Jackie Cooper in uh, Divorce in the Family, but really you could probably just stick your finger on any, uh, of the, Andy Griffith shows and and just watch Ron Howard, you know, watch what he does. If you have to pick one, I, I, I guess it would be the third season. I believe it's the third season or the second season premiere where Opie um, has an imaginary Mr. McGreevy, the Mr. McGreevy show. Uh, I have used that in my teaching and um, it, it's, it's one of the most moving episodes in, in the series. And 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 Ron Howard really is the one who allows it to to actually happen wonderfully. Ron Howard was in a Bird Eye Gordon movie too. <laughs> he was in Village of the Giants. He was the, the brain. I think was the 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 uh, character. I think part of the reason why you know a lot of these child actors and actresses had to resist these helicopter stage parents, who many times either you know, abuse them or try to take their money. I think part of the reason why Howard was able to develop the way he did was because of the support he had from his family. Uh, his dad, Rance Howard, who was a, you know, a character actor in Hollywood. He was in a number of Westerns. I think that's probably a, a, another another reason why, you know, the arc of Ron Howard's life developed the way it did, which is, brings us back, I guess, to what we were talking about, tying us back to Yitzchak's description of his trip to the film forum with his uh, 10-year-old son, Shlaimi, is that taking your kids to the movies, going to something that you and they can enjoy, talking with them afterwards, is a great bonding experience. And it's really something that 
with iPhones and with streaming services and everyone being in their own individual bubbles, we we have we don't have that pretty much at all anymore. So that's it, my friends. Watch your step on the way out. We'll catch you next time. Be well. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode. Thank you.